This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven to you. Robbery homicides take you. Give me all you got! Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's L.A. crime opus, Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me today, I mean, you know, I, I often rattle off people's uh, qualifications and CVs as part of the beginning of the show, but this is, a, this is actually quite a cool one. Um, I have the head of film at Sydney Film School, who just so happens to have been listening to One Heat Minute and talking through it. And from what I hear, a couple of students who, if you're listening to this episode, hello guys, thanks for listening um, at Sydney Film School. I've been listening along to One Heat Minute uh, and I'm joined by their head off who who does this kind of cinematic dissection as part of teaching the craft and imparting the craft of film um, onto new students in Sydney. So welcome, Michael McLennan, to One Heat Minute. Oh, thanks, Blake. Uh, thank you for having me. I, I almost can't believe I've kind of walked into the podcast here. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's here. You're here, and it's uh, it's it's a, it's a, a treat. As I said, it's a treat to talk to you. We were just uh, talking about it in the preamble. It's a treat to talk to you, and and uh, and 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 you as a as a teacher um, and as an educator uh, have done attempted this sort of exercise before. Can you just like recount a little bit some of your experience? Uh, unpacking minutes of films before because i think I, I, the audience who's listening to one eight minute would love to hear about it and particularly with a spielberg film yeah i will um i was really privileged to be taught by leslie oliver who was a great thinker in film and um he's based in thailand now but he kind of left with me an approach of how to really feel the film and how to see what buttons the filmmaker was actually pushing and like, there is a critical uh uh, there is a critical background of people who sort of do this. I think David Bordwell is is pretty good at it, actually. Oh, yes. Um, and it, what's really nice is to kind of unpack films for young people who want to learn film where they kind of see, oh, wait, that's the emotional effect you're having and this is the button I'm pushing to get it. And they kind of – there's not too many layers of complication you put on it. They really feel the connection between the choices they make and the emotions the audience feels. And so – I'll go through a lot of stuff in a given semester. Uh, Michael Mann's not uncommon. Usually I'm using bits of the insider yeah. rather than heat. The golf, the golf course scene is probably the, uh, the scene that I – most of my students have had to learn depth of field through that scene. Depth, yeah. Learning depth of field and the, the effects of uh, camera movement and inciting paranoia. Um, one of the great, it's, it's like every night, uh, the, the way I describe it, it's every new Hollywood paranoia movie in three minutes. Like that's exactly, and it's just every single one of them in this beautiful microcosm. It's lovely. That golf course scene. Great scene. Yeah. And kind of one of the reasons why that's a really nice scene actually is that you see if like, that's a social worthiness genre film. If ever you saw one, like it's like, we're going to get the truth out. We're going to go against uh, a kind of corporate behemoth. And yet it's made like a paranoid thriller for large stretches of it. It kind of has a very different genre put on it. And look, bless its soul, it got all the Oscar nominations and it, it, it has all of that in it, but it, it doesn't feel like one of those films that's trying to be respectable. It feels like it found the honest fear within the tale. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah. And Michael, you know, Michael, man, this is the thing that I I love to talk about with him. And, you know, uh, authorship as a, you know, the, the great term pretty much coined by Andrew Saris, the, the American film critic genius that he was, um, you know, cinematic authorship is like a, it's, it's sometimes a dirty word um, mm-hmm. in, in cinema studies because it's like, who is the author? And, you know, there's a village of people who are cre- of creatives who make a movie. But one of the valid things is, you, you know, when you see certain kinds of filmmakers who affect their sort of political and social backgrounds and views onto a film, you have a look at like a Michael Manning, and I think you nailed it there, Michael, saying, you know, here you have a filmmaker who's churning out of the 70s, attends, you know, film school in England. He makes documentaries of riots that were occurring in the States, um, you know, around the time of the death of Martin Luther King. And... All of his contemporaries, the Scorsese's, like from a from a socio political background, are all making films. And this guy's making a few docos, a TV movie here. He goes to TV, but then when he eventually approaches this content, and you see it from this like sort of protracted way, it's like made in the nineties, but it sort of captures that fear. It's no surprise. You go, well, that's the guy. Like he grew up. That's his language. If you're talking about what he's, how is he going to express it? Like when he sees a corporate behemoth that's trying to squash you know, political freedom. Like he sees the fear in that. And so then it becomes like, it totally makes sense. The reading starts to become, okay, well, like what decisions would he make to affect that reading? And, and to your, to your point as well, I don't think Michael Mann has ever been a filmmaker that has been there thinking of like, Oh, this is going to be my prestige movie. Like this is going to be the one that wins my Oscar. Like he's a real different filmmaker in that respect. Um, He's just sort of been a bit of a maverick going, I'm going to make these quality films. They're going to be with ginormous actors. And if they get the accolades, well, they get the accolades, but he's sort of uncompromising about what the vision is going to be for him. It's an interesting. He's an interesting test subject, as in this whole podcast. You know, he's the, the creative sort yeah. of uh, center of this whole podcast. I mean, one of the nice things about him, and it's, it, it may not come up in the same, but it may, is that he's such a stylized filmmaker for sure. Like he, you have these moments of like even that golf course scene, the, the way this weird Latin mass is brought in and you hear this eerie soprano um, yes. while the lights sort of switch off and there's this slow motion golf ball coming in and hitting the net and it's it's the most calculated thing you've ever seen but at the same time it's in a context of a style of filmmaking where he is so committed to the idea that the world around his film has the the depth of our real world like the stories of all the characters like the, his commitment to backstory his commitment to in media res the feeling that you're always entering in the middle of something yes that, uh, whether it's the, the unabomber the, the way the, the weird about the unabomber just sort of goes in and out of the insider and it's like why is it there and it's there to show that the it, it's there for open form reasons. It, it just points your attention out to, yeah, this has the complexity of our world. Uh, he had a great guest, and I've actually forgotten who spoke a little bit about the Insider actually, a few episodes back, and it was quite nice the the reading they put on it, just the way it it used time and place in a very dense way. Um, you always get this feeling though with his films that uh, I think Heat has this in in the sense that every time you look out over the Los Angeles sky, you are seeing you are sensing the other characters out there. Um, you always feel that uh, that larger world you've been given a you've been given a sense of it, that these people don't exist just for the story moments, but there's a broader social web around. Yeah, I, I find it like when you talk about it like that, I think it might have been Niall Schwartz you're thinking of, who's a terrific, yeah. terrific film mind and a man head 
and uh, is probably the most, you know, one of the most acute readers of man films as far as like cinematic temporality because that's one thing that man kind of does adhere to and mess with um, in equal measure, which is really nice in his work. Um, I think in this movie what is striking me, and it it really comes back to the minute that we're talking about in just a moment, is Mm. that no matter the the breadth of the city um, uh, where we go out to, and in this case it's in Venice Beach, um, whenever we're standing, you know, with Neil looking out to the ocean, whenever we're standing with Neil and Edie looking back down into the, the sea of lights, when we're seeing Vincent um, and which we'll see in a few moments in a hotel room just looking down to the lights of the city or visiting Kelso to get the plans for the bank heist. It's like the centre of the city, downtown LA, or just the city itself has this like magnetism. It's like this gyre that's like sucking everyone back into it. So there's this like fatalistic thing where you go everyone's coming back like there's there's like there's very few threads of this story this is one of them we're about to encounter that like people get out of this thing like people get out of this this vacuum you know it's so hard yeah Yeah. and um i just actually one of the things we just talked about briefly before was um just my background with the film i've had a very long history with this film i I started hearing people talk about it when I was in year nine at school that there'd be this film that would bring Pacino and De Niro together, and I didn't even know who those guys were. I hadn't seen any of their their films. But I thought, well, this, this sounds like an event. Let's go and see it. And it's this strange and languid and heavy thing, and I, and I don't know if I really got it, but boy, left a mark. And I'd, I'd bought the soundtrack as well. It was probably about – I mean, I'd – have thousands of things now, but I was probably number five of all the soundtracks ever. Um, and it didn't really fit because I'd been like this orchestral romantic kind of fan of, of film music. Uh, you know, give me James Horner, give me John Williams, Hans Zimmer. I guess that's sort of getting a little out of orchestral romantic, but it, it um, this was different. It was like, what the hell is this? Um, <laughs> A strange blend of musical types, and even even the traditional score in it is is not traditional in the no. least. It's it's very very out there and avant garde. Um, so uh, it's been with me for over. It's been with me for as long as the film has been around, and I saw it again once in the cinema at an anniversary screening. Um, I wore out my VHS on it, but I yeah, been a while since I've seen the whole thing. But I, it's it's one of those films where you you know it'll always be there. You'll go back and. Yeah, you'll you'll disappear into it. I was so lucky yeah. in Sydney, and I wish that we could have had this conversation just prior to that, Michael. I was able to convince you to come along. There was a thirty-five mil print screening at the Randwick Ritz very recently, um, and I know that Michael Mann and Dante Spinotti are sure that the four K re-release of the Defractors Definitive Edition is like the version that they're happy with in existence in the universe. But oh boy, oh boy, did that thirty-five mil print and the sound. Did that really shake me to my core? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. All right, guys. It's the 136th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 Crime Opus Heat. We're going to dive into it. And, you know, if, if for those unfamiliar, if this is your first episode of One Heat Minute, welcome. But this is uh, leading into a scene that uh, the great Bilga Ibiri, writer for Vulture, former uh, writer for Village Voice, um, Bilga Ibiri called this scene the scene that if all of cinema was lost, you would be able to teach people about how to impact people's emotions with cinema. So I'm so privileged now that I'm I'm with an educator for the beginnings of this scene because he feels, Bilga felt, and and a lot of people, this is 
there are the, I spoke about this before I used the phrase there are some magnetic minutes in this there's a magnetic sense in this movie that everything's drawing together but there are some magnetic minutes in this movie that people are drawn to talking to um, and in this over the next three minutes this scene um, that features Ashley Judge Challenge Hillis Val Kilmer's Krisha Hillis and and also to a lesser extent McKelty Williams' Agent Drucker um, uh, Sergeant Drucker rather um, that has all of the qualities uh, that this movie has, which is people compromising life-changing decisions, making compromi- life-compromising decisions um, in the heat of the moment for emotional reasons, and it just—it's probably more effective in this minute, in these coming minutes, than any other minutes of the film. So, it's going to be a pleasure for us to talk about it. But we're going to quickly watch it together, Michael and I. You guys are going to listen along, and then we're going to come back and talk about it. Yeah, I got a lot of Okay, I'll hold. Come on, sugar, show yourself. Yeah, do it. Shut up! Now, just one second at the window, and it's all over. Uh, a wolf story is a character struggling. Um, that's that's that. <laughs> that there there is, um, there is. Uh, the, the, I think it's like forty seconds into this video. We're going to just speak completely randomly for a second, but there's something so deeply effective, and so this is like where you see what film craft really is, and it's mo- moment movement in a in a, it's movement in a steel frame that just gets to me. Michael, I don't know about mm. you, but it's like Vincent holding the phone and you see Schwartz mm. stand up behind him. So Schwartz is the the blonde, one of his blonde offsiders who's got the, the arm in his sling. And then complete, he's, he's almost completely blurred, but you can see him, Vincent's in crisp focus. And in, in sort of the mid-ground behind Vincent, you you know, over the shoulder, you see Casals, where Studi's character just sees, you know, in unmistakable face and, 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 and stature. And he just sneaks into the frame. And it's like that that's that shot is maybe on screen for three seconds, but I reckon the tension that even him just gliding into that frame, that it ratchets up on this sequence, on this minute, is just like, oh, that's the gut punch. That's like, oh my God, there is something really gonna happen here. It's unbelievable. Yeah, there's some. The, I mean, the funny thing about the scene is that she's kind of already decided to do it in a way. And the previous scene she was in, she she kind of relented. The case was made, and and it's on. Yes. So here she's going to betray. But even now, there's like there's that there's this wait. Okay, you're going to do it. Are you sure you're going to do it? Um, and I love the way, in particular, the scene in the room around. Like the thing you're describing with Pacino standing up and the two guys in the background sort of standing 
anticipating. It's kind of an echo of something going on in the room she's in where you have this sort of great dolly across the room into a, a three-shot where you've got Hank Azaria on the left, you have McKelty Williamson in the background, and you have her sort of pinned uh, right of frame. And she kind of holds that position. Uh, the whole of the scene uh, until she makes a move and you you cut around and you cut behind and you you very much have a sense of the back of her head actually yeah. for the scene you're waiting for her to sort of make a move and it's very much a scene about these guys they've got a great idea this is the part of the film where they're really going to hook neil based on his connection to chris um it's a good idea and they've got the bait but the bait has to go with it <laughs> yeah. and so they're waiting they're waiting and they're they're watching and um just in the same way drucker is standing in the background and then you know say billy goldenberg sort of cuts to that great I, I mean who knows the beauty of film editing is you always wonder where was that moment of where studio standing up meant to be but now it's as though they're all watching her they're all seeing what's on the other end of that phone. It's an impossible gaze. And now they're, now they're all looking at the back of their head waiting, where is this going going to turn around and do something? And it's like, uh, and, and it's funny because Schwartz is staring at the back of Vincent's head and Studi's staring yeah. at the back of, <laughs> and Studi's staring at the back of Vincent's head and Vincent's staring through the phone and, mm. and, and that's through Drucker and now into the back of her mind. It's like, will she or won't she? I love that compounded like gazes as you were talking about there, impossible gaze. There's a great moment as well in Drucker's delivery, in, 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 in McKelty Williams' delivery as Drucker, is that for so much of his performance in here, he's completely on his game. This is like very mm. great cadence. Like he's just bouncing around the words, you know. I don't Come need to sell shit yeah. <laughs> this shit sells itself. Like it's just such a there's just yeah. such a rhythm to everything that he's saying and he's such a talent for that. That's why obviously he's cast as Don King in uh, in Ali, because he can just he's the guy who can wrangle the language like that. But he's so good and in this moment he goes like he's like, you know, you only have to make this choice and it's over. Like he, the, the the last breathy delivery is that desperation, that crackle, like this, there is a chink in the armor here. Like if she doesn't get up, all this goes to shit. Um, and they just have to take her away and they're back to square one. But I think he's just banking on it in that moment so much. It's so beautifully, just like beautifully, you know, disclosed there. Yeah. Yeah. And like he's, he gets a nice little mid shot at one point and the shot of the back of her head is actually his point of view. Yes. And the funny thing about, the scene is you'd think well you, I mean most directors coming into the scene it would be it would be all about her looking at Dominic and yes. her hearing the sound of the car and she'd be weighing up this these two in her head but instead it's more about the procedural side of the scene the the guys are waiting and they're, they're you know they're playing their games and as you say it's very much about, like you feel the modulation in his strategy they're sort of going from the confidence to okay maybe we need to put a little bit more carrot here um, we need to get it to move and it's very uh, anyway. It's 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 kind of odd because I don't think people a typical director would take this approach to the scene, but it it really is part of its uniqueness. You might remember the previous scene with Drucker. She's had a focus for most of it in the foreground. Yes, he's talking to her, and it's in a funny way. Again, it's trying to extract a decision from her, and the scene is not really about her. I mean, she's there in the frame, but it's the focus being on his face is an interesting choice. Uh, when is she going to turn around and play their part? It's a little bit about uh, the unknowability of the character from their perspective. Um, 
And I think it's the um, I love I love that out of yeah. focus because we're out of focus. You know, I think that that's the yeah. real talent of Michael Mann. It's like the scene is so much about the procedural, but he's got such a this is the procedural and being able to overlay emotion. Like he knows that right in that moment, we don't need her in Chris' focus because he's telling a story as as you would be so aware of in what you're in when you're teaching is he's telling us a story and and her indecision can be out of focus. Like there's a formal element of here of like, I don't want her to be crisp. I don't want her to have clarity. I don't even want us to see her face because I know that I don't need my characters to say it. Like, you know, especially with my actors, you know, Bonnie Timmerman, who's the casting director, did I think one of the best jobs ever in assembling a cast of people together. It's like, I don't Mm. need them to do anything. I don't need them to say a single word. I'm going to watch them chew over this. And in that scene, Mm. we're, we're there to marvel at Drucker's aptitude with how to how to how to you know move that bolt how to how to how to how to how to to frame it so perfectly that she can't say no because it's not about it's not about getting out we'll put you somewhere in paradise it's about all the consequences of what happens when she says no because she she everything that about her says she's going to say no and that that, instead of having a a two shot that maybe looks like he's going to have more luck it, it we, we she doesn't even go into focus until the I think it's like a post phone call in the next scene where the camera can shift focus in the edit. It's just a very subtle thing where she comes into Chris focus with him mm. and then goes yes and makes the nod. You know, it's so it's like oh that's yeah. that's that's, that's the, um, that, Yeah, it's well, it's it's confidence and it's I mean one an ensemble that there's so many ways he could have viewed across this landscape and and there would have been something good everywhere. But, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I, know, sp- I suppose that's a, like what, what do you call that perspective? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's embarrass. Is that an embarrassment of riches when you're just looking across and you're like, oh, there are just so many. I could shoot the living daylights out of any one of these scenes, and I've got great performers that are just in every spot in this frame. The um, one of the things actually I did sort of because uh, I'm really conscious of the moment this has come out of, and it's one of the few moments in this part of the script where it really, it really reads like actually this transition was written into the script. We went from Neil having that conversation with Edie to this scene where she's getting ready to choose. There's a little bit of shuffling around in the back end mm-hmm. of the edit of what what comes in what order, and it it's like, it feels very much like there's a parallel going on here too. You have yeah, Edie, who has sort of like, as you guys described in an episode, she's very much surrendered her agency at the end of that scene. And you come in on Charlene, and she's kind of getting ready for what is a surrender of her agency. Like, you have no choice here. You've got to, you've got to do this. The logic, yeah, this shit sells itself, <laughs> yes. as um, Trucker says. And just, uh, I'm just going to ask you, Michael. Scene. Just try, just try for the next week to not have heat dialogue permeate everything <laughs> that you do. Just try. Like, I mean, you know. This shit sells itself. It's a free country, man. You know, like it's you yeah. know what it, it, it will just happen. It will happen. It's uh, I, I think I've said it. Shit, this shit sells itself almost fifty times in the last month. Uh, working around these minutes and these scenes, and keep continuing to you know not be able to help myself but watch past the minute and around the minute for in preparation for the show. 
Um, and yeah, it's so great. I keep, I keep trying to, I keep trying to work in. I'm not into medals. Um, yeah, <laughs> I tell you what, I don't do. I tell you what, I don't do. I don't sell medals. If someone, asks, yeah, that, you know that yeah. that's got to be something that happens at a cafe or a party or something like that, or or, or a meet and greet. You know, Michael, what do you do? Well, I'll tell you what, I don't do. I don't do, uh, sell medals. Um, I'm the head of Sydney. I'm the head of uh, film in Sydney Film School. Um, yeah, no, you're so right. Um, I'll let you jump into that point, but. You know that's another thing that marvels me in this massive movie is that is the mm. is the architecture of mirrored moments because I think mm. early on you know we just talked really briefly before we kicked off the podcast recording around you know the length of the episodes of this show and it's just by osmosis that like that's that's what's happened we haven't intended to do it but what happens when you when you're purely examining a a context setting minute you know in the spirit of the show you don't have all the other minutes around it to package it. And so some of my favorite minutes, I think it sort of started in about the forties, forties and, you know, and through to the sixties. One of my favorite minutes is Manola Dargis, you know, talking a long and languid point that was built up from three conversations previous. And I think that there's in this moment here, we can see all the mirrors. We can see all the ways that Charlene is like none of these women, you know, yeah. <laughs> he's like none of the women around them or maybe Justine and Charlene are, are these two unicorns in the whole world um, who seem to be in situations of powerlessness but then make big brash decisions no matter what the cost, you know? They're so wonderful. And, yeah, Edie, what is – it's deepened my appreciation for Edie as a character because without Edie, without that misdirection that I think you are talking about in the previous scene, it doesn't make this scene – it doesn't give this scene the same level of power that it has at the end of it. Well, it's it's a funny one because in the previous scene, Edie's in the foreground. She's in the right of frame, also where Charlene is in the scene, also in the right of frame. But it focuses on Neil. And even when she turns around and says, I'm going with you, it's still, it's a closer shot of Neil over her shoulder. And it kind of, the lack of focus and the lack of sort of cutting around to her face kind of says, there's a surrender here, but it's not really, there's not really agency. And yet, the coverage here is a lot more about a person of agency. Um, I made a big thing at the back of her head, but to be honest, the, the, you know, the best shots are the ones where it's all about the front of her head and sensing Drucker out of focus in the background and those sort of exquisite focus pulls back and forth. You have this nice triangle set up between her and um, the bad cop in the room, Hank Azaria's character. Um, oh, he's, yeah, uh, he's, he's, he's uh, the bad cop that makes uh, <laughs> the bad cop that makes anyone a good cop. <laughs> Alan Marciano, the, the, one of the great douchebags. Yeah, do it. Like it's just like, oh, shut up, shut up. He's 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 very good. He's he's good in this scene. I'm glad he got a mention because in, in some of these scenes, he, he he's so overtaken by the gravity of the rest of the situation. Yeah, one. I mean, one thing I did want to mention. You talked about the stillness of the scene, and even as you come into it off that car, like that that beautiful sort of yeah. car going to the right in the night, and then you like everything around Vincent. The camera just he picks up the phone. The camera spins around him. Mm-hmm. yeah, the camera just can't keep still around Vincent. And then you know you sail across this room and you're down. Then you're into the still shots, and it's like okay, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. Um, and so the movement is sort of it has a base breath here the music which launched out of the last scene sort of tails off here waiting for a choice because music often can't be around when a character really has to choose um 
and we i'm just trying to think there's a lot there's a lot in this space i'd love to love to address i'm just trying to think efficiently um one of the things that's a little surprising about the scene you normally think of a michael mann film and the location work is the first thing that comes to mind and i looked at the scene and i thought whoa it's a really empty place but it because that, that's the concept of it, right? It's a safe house. No one lives here. And if you walk away from your life, this is what it is. It's emptiness. And it still, it, feel, still feels it, yeah. more furnished than Neil's house. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> that's, the one, that's the one funny thing I've always thought about. It's like, oh, it's a really nice, it's a really nice apartment. It's a really nice apartment. Like, you know, in compare, even though Neil's on the, yeah. on the water, it's still a Venice beach. It's still, still around. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. But I guess that's the the film. I mean, you're sort of held up as like the the ideal in a way. Uh, well, it's not not. I mean, obviously he's a sociopath, but he's like this loner, loner who needs no one. And then this this is a world where uh, if you give in to your need for connection with other people, you get killed. And and so Charlene has kind of thrown that now here. She you know from the top of a building, well from somewhere off a balcony at least, yeah you know, she gets to sort of rise up in the world and there's this possibility you know you could cut off your connection to the world below and you could be free of it and just like Neil with his place up above, just like Edie's place, like she's an introvert, she doesn't really connect with the world down there. He Even Treyos, Treyos, Treyos' place is still on the fringe, you know, like the and and I think yeah. that that's that's part of the you know to make that inverse that's part of the tension of treo he's like he's not an insider guy so for that brief split second where you're not quite sure whether he's going to betray them whether he has betrayed them and paired up with whoever has betrayed them they're outsiders but so many people just made the wrong choices in this movie and it's agonizingly great to watch them do that and it'd be interesting to, like, I'm not sure why, how I feel about what she did choose, actually. I mean, that's a business for a later minute for me, but <laughs> one of the funny things about Heat is, uh, it is, it's actually about everyone is going to go against their word in the end. Everything they they say about themselves is an aspiration they're going to follow through. So Chris is a man who says he can't leave her, and yet. And he's made and, to leave her. You know, and Charlene, her first scene is all about the reasons why Chris isn't going to work out with her. And yet, with all the stakes here, she's going to favor that connection. And, you know, why does Neil get caught in the end? And why does Vincent catch him? It isn't because one's bad and one's good. It's because Neil, Neil is a guy who can't walk out when he sees the heat around the corner. And the connection wasn't easy. It was Wayne Grow. He is he's a control freak, and he couldn't not tie up his end. Um, we're meant to think Edie's the connection that's going to test him, but given the chance, he does actually walk out on her. Um, Vincent, on the other hand, you know, he he walks in on the suicide of a, of the stepdaughter, and he says, "No, not this, not this," as though this is the last straw. But even that, he can walk out of that hospital room when. He knows the time is coming because he's the guy that can do that. He he he's can dan- he, he can dance down those stairs. Yeah. I think so many people are going to talk about yeah. it. It's going to come up. It's not quite there in the in in the one hit minute, but that's the blessing of this show. We occasionally break the discipline to talk about it. Yeah. He dances down those stairs. He's the guy who can see that carnage. Yeah, and just get on with it and do what he needs to do. Yeah, I mean it's. Only- I mean, everyone else has a need for connection as other denying it. He's the only one who actually, I think he, I mean, he does have his fraternity, but I think even there he, he kind of 
Yeah, he's independent of them in a way. Neil isn't independent of his crew. In the in the um, in the yeah. most hilarious way as well. It's like when he asks Schwartz, "Hey, how you doing?" He's like, "He's all banged up." He's like, "You know, I'm banged up, but I live okay." <laughs> he just hangs the phone up. That's such a Vincent Hanna yeah. thing to do. Yeah, it's also yeah. the most like a film director of any character in the film. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's um, yeah, I don't get too caught up in how the actor feels. Just sort of you know, power on. Yeah. Um, as long yeah. as you've asked the question, you've done your due diligence. That's fine. Oh man, that's funny. Yeah. That's really funny. Um, he, uh, yeah, I, you know, this movie is, and it really struck me um, seeing it on the cinema screen again and having an audience, uh, you know, breathing in and out with you in in these minutes in this in this rush towards the ending is that, you know, it's it's there's no there, there's you know, I think Nate says you know it's a free country, but. It's it's not a this is not a free lunch you know this this whole thing is like you don't get to live this life without consequences and I think that that's what's so deeply satisfying and also deeply tragic about the film is that like everyone has made decisions to get where they are and and now they're going to be compromised for them even Hank Azaria's douchebag character you know sold something illegal back in New Jersey he's tried to beat a beef with he's probably lived his life happily for a decade. And just gotten away, you know, you know, kept a better life, been a legitimate businessman, and and he's even dragged back in. So it's like no one's, no one's also innocent as well. The only person that's innocent in this whole scene, as you talked about, is Dominic. You know, in this moment, in this upcoming he moment, doesn't get a shot. He hasn't got a I shot. Think, he hasn't got a shot. Both of his parents. I I'm I'm under to check it again. I almost think the script might have mentioned him uh, somewhere in the scene, but he's it's he's an interesting absence actually, and I I kind of respect it more that he's not there because it's it's the first thing you normally would show, right? It's, oh. and so to go past it is to yeah. Is I to, I think it's almost um, to your point. I think you made a really great point. Is a perhaps less confident director is going to say. She's going to do the right thing. She's going to cut him off. She's going to be the one that says, you know, the sun doesn't rise and set with me for you, Chris. I'm out. She wants to get out of there. And they're going to use Dominic as the excuse. And so even framing him, mentioning him, showing him in this scene, to your point, it's almost like they'd be slave. They'd sort of have to slavishly adhere to that or like really great with yeah. people. And I think when you just make them contend with each other as individuals, these two people who are in who were and are perhaps still in love, um I think it makes for it's yeah, like you said, it's a it's much more brazen thing to do. Like if you you saw a short film with someone who made that decision, you know, even if it was in a ten minute film, you'd be like, Well, okay, so we've got this context and they're just ignoring it. They're just making us face to face with two individuals, adults, people who have to stare into each other and decide whether this is going to be the thing. Where what's yeah, going to happen? And by the, I mean, and by the way, a unique moment in Heat. There, are, I think, there are two moments when people look into each other's face in this film, and one of them is two guys who aren't really looking at each other, which is the moment with the infrared um, image of McCoy looking. I'm just at going to correct you. Right infra in blue. Infra blue. In a Michael Mann movie, it's infra the infra, infra, it's not even red. It's okay. infra blue. Okay. <laughs> I stand, stand, stand corrected. There's my. Um, no, you're I'm right. I'm infra colorblind. Yeah, the, um, the, um, but it, I think it's interesting for these characters. It's Charlene and Chris that get that. They're the only characters that get to look almost the way you and I are looking at each other now, which is like full in the face. I mean, they're not quite eye line into camera. They're just off. 
but it's it's a kind of emotional access that very few people get given in this film. Uh, even the Neil Hannah scene where they meet each other is is nice is nice conservative off to the side. Where it's you know we see their faces, but it's we're not really in their faces. Um, and again, I'm stealing territory from you next minute, so I don't want to. Um, one thing I did want to talk about here just. If I was if I was doing this for class, one thing I'd really love to point out to them is like you've got a room with cream walls and windows, and yet it's enough. You can create a scene where you can frame her in front of the black yes. and everyone else in front of the cream. And cream is her color, right? She's been wearing cream from her first scene, and and it's it's a different different jumper she's got on, but essentially the production designer has brought the color palette around. She's she stepped out in black for her affair. She's been in uh, something else for the night out, probably black again. But she's kind of come back to her home color tone. And for her, she's sort of edging right of frame, just sort of sitting into that black window. And when she gets up to go, like that shot from behind, it's against darkness and she walks out into the night. And this is her night. Like it's, it's kind of absolute and, and, you know, the black takes over the frame. In fact, Snowdy doesn't, doesn't try to keep her fully illuminated as she goes, like she sort of steps in and out of puddles. Um, I mean, truly a character stepping out into their most uncertain territory and it's, it's simple and it's, it's so beautifully effective. Um, Hannah's uh, sort of brief appearances in the scene with this, these, these strong, the, the, the most postmodern police station ever. These sort of concrete. <laughs> I know it's just all concrete. Con- ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah con- <laughs> concrete, and even and one of the most like visually interesting because it's got these the cubes that are cut out in the concrete, so it's not even a flat thing. It gives this extra depth perception in the in there because yes. you're seeing into different rooms that are surrounding this sort of mess hall. But he's always the Vincent. To your point, if if Ashley Judd and I, I totally spot on, Neil's the grey. Neil's the grey, mm. Pacino's the black. You know, it's not black and white. Yeah. It's he's he's the darkness in the frame, and here she's the that beautiful cream. And and it's also I think it's Chris's color too, like that the hair, the hair, hair color too, the yeah. hair color. Yeah. It's that kind of weird yeah. connection that they've both got. And and you know when they're the happiest, they're framed together, and you see a lot of their faces and her, her skin, her shoulders. You see his long hair, similar complexions, and yeah, I think. Um, you know, Dante Spinotti is Dante Spinotti, right? Like, you know, the, he's uh, yeah. he's just got such a command of how to create, how to continue to distill mood. Like, and just to emphasize, like, Ashley Judd's doing all the performing here, but the lighting is just phenomenal. Like, she's got to act no matter what the lighting is. And in this moment, like you said, she's in these puddles. You know, she's in, in literally in the last frame that we've paused on. Half of her face is just barely illuminated and all this anguish is already there. She's got this sort of little lights of a halo you know behind her it's just stunning it's a stunning little um uh, lots of stunning little uh frame grabs here in this minute yeah no um that thing you mentioned about the little oblong objects carved into the detective wall have you seen the car park of that place when he, yes um, yes when he pull, pulls out i mean and then they're, they're all carved into the walls of the concrete of the car park too and it's like uh, I mean, they didn't find that poor Neil Spizak would have had to, had to go and make one of them, one of them more like the other. <laughs> you know, for like a ten-second shot of the police car park when he pulls out in a hurry. Um, and the boy, you feel he's great at this at 
asking for his team to give a sense of structure and design that is so commenting on character and, and everything. And it's a very constructive world, but it never really, it doesn't quite jump out and say, ha ha, you, you know, see the designing hand. You, you, it just falls inside reality. It, yeah, it's a delicate kind of. It is kind weird. Of it, it, it is weird because I've, I've mentioned this in just a, a completely different, uh, in a different context, and I think you're bringing into it with the other departments, which I love. So just for context, there have been heaps. Of, there are lots of match cuts in this movie that would fly mm. by the wayside if you hadn't seen it many times, or if you haven't naturally got an eye for that. And what I mean by that, if anyone's listening who doesn't understand what I mean, is it's a it's a transition in the film or an edit in the film where you know whether it's a visual motif or a character motif or something like that that's happening. That and when it cuts to a completely different scene, it's got the same thing. So one of the notable ones is really early in the film is that Neil is um, uh, with Nate after visiting Kelso, and they're walking along, and there's they're standing next to this sort of chain link fence, and the light is coming through. And in the very next scene, Neil is walking into the entry hallway of his house, and um, the, just the effect of the light through the window looks the same as a chain link in this white room. Like it's this weird, very it's it's almost like an abstract match cut. And I think in, yeah. in other movies, and, and the other big one in this movie is like um, where it's it's like it's the Edgar Wright cut in this movie where Wayne Grow grabs a prostitute's head and he goes to oh, yeah. he goes to snap her neck and a bottle instead of you actually seeing the disgusting things that he does to this poor prostitute, um, a bottle top clips in a bar in a in a cut and it's like that feels like that's like Edgar Wright Robert Rodriguez one hundred and one. Um, edits, you know, mm. like very flashy. But in a Michael Mann movie, it sort of happens and it's there for maximum power and effect. But it doesn't – it's it's just not even – it's just glanced by. He just has this habit of being able to say, this is what I'm going to do and yeah. it's going to happen. And and in all departments, but it's 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 all for there. It's all for the character. It's all for the mood of the film. It's all for the – and nothing's about trying to impress anyone. Yeah. Um, beautiful image, by the way. And you're, you're right; it's all in the transitions in the story because it's it's one of these. I, I'm trying to think back and think of it as like this is the time of shortcuts. This is the time of the player. Babel hasn't come yet. The hours hasn't come yet. This is the birth of network narrative, as as Baldwin would call it. And <laughs> yes. so there's a lot of passing the ball from one part of the story to the other and it's it's a relatively new art although i guess dw griffith was, was doing it but there's this beautiful this character you never meet again the sniper you just see his eye yes. it's the only thing that's in focus and eliminated in the frame and while there's this beautiful echoing electric guitar that's sort of announcing all the masculine pain in the world and you, you have this this sniper's eye kind of looking down over the city and it's like <laughs> I mean, it's pretty rich stuff. It's, yeah. It's, um, yeah. Um, yeah. If, if you lingered on it another 10 seconds as anyone else would, it would become too symbolic. But I, would, I, was, um, yeah. I was just going to say that that could be the new name of this podcast, All the Masculine Pain in the World. <laughs> could, be the, could be the cover band that comes str- streaming out of the end of this podcast. Um, Michael and I are in it. Um, we need have, you ever had anyone on who, have you ever had anyone on who really hated heaps, by the way? Like I have. I have um, my best. My How best, does that work? I, it um, it, you know what's really funny is uh, in the ninetieth episode, it's a live episode. It wasn't solely with this guest, but Maria Lewis, who is my best friend and is a 
extremely talented author and writer and savant journalist from a young, you know, uh, wunderkind uh, journalist. She hates heat. Um, she's like, oh, this masculine bullshit is pretty much all your men bullshit, right? <laughs> it's pretty much her shorthand for this whole movie. But the more I dig into it, she'll appreciate the hell out of some of the formal qualities of the movie. She'll appreciate the ambition, and I think she'll also appreciate it. Um, Diane Venora, she, I think she liked Diane Venora's bangs in this movie because it reminded her of Diane Venora's bangs in The Jackal. Um, she's not a big fan of Ashley Judd, so she's, you know, she didn't really like it. But I think what I find about Heat more than anything is that you might hate it. And even I had a, another great writer for Junkie, Tom Clift, who's a film writer, um, film critic and culture writer. Um, he's like, I don't like this movie. And I go, okay. And we spoke about it. And what I find is the more I talk to people about it, the more, even if they don't like it, like a feeling of subjective liking, there's an objective agreement that it's pretty freaking amazing. Like it's a formal masterpiece yeah. or it's an acting powerhouse or it's deeply ambitious or it's something that, you know, has a quality um, for, you know, for a very long movie that can feel propulsive and have energy and, and have mood that is sustained and a command and like, and, and, you know, to talk about that, um, that sort of author, you know, author voice, like an authorial voice of like, oh, this is such like the distilling of all of Michael Mann's, you know, the thesis of, you know, criminality and professionalism and men, masculinity, you know, in, in its like peak before he sort of starts to, you know, be, you know, uh, I suppose less reliant on narrative and more focused on style. Um, so yeah, I, I, it's it's what's funny is that I haven't really found someone who deeply hates it who can not agree that there are good parts about it. It's probably the best way that I would say. <laughs> Objectively, they would go, no, that that's actually pretty good. No, that's actually pretty amazing. Yeah. Or that's actually pretty, pretty, pretty cool. Um, uh, without sort of going all the way to hate. Yeah, well, I think, I think it'd be hard to respect a guy who's sort of spent 135 hours talking about <laughs> it. Yeah, I think that you, you're probably the biggest character witness this film has. Um, but it's, you should give it another look. You really should spend some time. With this yeah, thing. I, I, um, I think I think I, if there's anything that I've, uh, I'm qualified to say is like, if you don't like it, you definitely should watch it again because you know I, I've been enriched. I've been enriched. Um, by each new viewing. Um, but people haven't been able to do, hopefully they can listen to the podcast and feel some of the, the energy that I get from talking to people like yourself, Michael's like, you know, we get to talk about it, you know, you you get to unpack those little details. And I love that color, the the talk of color and heat, because so much of the color you talk about with Michael Mann, it's sort of a default thing. Oh, everything's blue. It's blue. You know, Michael Mann, it's just blue, but it's no, it's, it's, there's, there's something. If it was, it wouldn't look blue. Exactly. Exactly. Um, it's, but there's still that, the tone of the whole movie. It's about those settings and the pairings. You know, I'm just thinking about it right now. Justine and Justine and Vincent, black on black. They're all black on yeah. black. And yeah. Ashley Judd and Chris, they're cream coloured. And Neil and Edie could not be more polar opposites. You know, he's in that yeah. crisp grey and she's in sort of hippy-dippy outfits throughout the whole movie, browns and, you know, different colours like that. It's it's so, it's so just another flavour to this whole movie. 
She's been in her films influenced by Heat. I wouldn't be surprised if Villeneuve and Patrice Vermette had been looking at this for Sicario. Yeah. The, the various Emily Blunt's kind of color palette arc in that film seems to track between these three groups, and you feel a bit of Heat at times in that film. Yeah. yeah. It's, 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 um, got, it's got some flashes. It's got some flashes. And you can just see in the um, – uh, getting to the nitty gritty, the procedural, and then that just being thrown out the door because people, you know, people with higher powers of, and can be emotional, can lead with yeah. like a lack of reason. I think that's one really cool thing about Sicario is that it tries to be really procedural and, it, you know, and, and that's all in Emily Blunt's character. It tries to be trying desperately to stay procedural in a world that just doesn't, it doesn't register, yeah. it doesn't click. So I couldn't. I, I haven't seen the sequel. I, I hope for the best, but I I suspect it will miss its conscience. Um, uh, that film. The one thing I just wanted to remark on actually, uh, there's a few seconds of music in the scene, and I just feel like I should yes, say something. No, about please music. do. Um, Good. Um, uh, one thing I will say um, about this is when you speak to the head of film at a film school. Um, uh, I almost wish that I'd had like as detailed a breakdown notes for every single episode as I do with Michael, because Michael is like, I don't know about your other guests but here's my detailed thoughts i think we should cover i'm like oh. this is incredible this is incredible i usually have some threadbare notes um to, to allow the minute to, to go through and as the expert on the show i suppose after watching it this many times um i kind of have a sense of where i want to where i want to traverse but yeah you had a really great a great note on on the music and the tone in this uh, in this scene yeah, I mean, it, it, and incidentally, it's one of the things that I try to teach the students. No, no, just watch it again and just write down what you see because in the end, uh, there may have been an accident, it may have been luck, but someone made a choice here and this is what you're seeing. And maybe they weren't doing it for the reason we suppose, but let's let's treat the layered creation that it is with the, the, the sort of yes. respect that, you know, because even bad films had a lot of care and uh, even Den of Thieves, I mean, someone, <laughs> someone... Someone stayed up all night, you know, making a police car look good in a scene from that. You know, that's, yes. that was, yeah. Um, but the music, it, it's funny because Goldenthal has an odd presence in this film and man's always had this, he's not really one for the composed score. He's, uh, I remember I had a hard time with this because originally I was like one of those people like, oh, I know the, there should be a unified musical score that could draw the film together and it was, yeah. it was kind of, Cordy Goldman stereotype of what a film score would be, and yes. and someone sort of taught me, no, 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 two thousand and one isn't disparate because of all the different music. The film is actually drawing the music together. Yes, and Man would be the greatest case of that because it's so cross genre from all over the place, and yet his most powerful stuff is usually his needle drops, yes. and so the piece from the insider that got the Gustavo Santolaya piece that got sort of ripped forever in film uh iguazu yeah iguazu uh, was is, i was just drop. i was just gonna say yeah. it's a it's a huge needle yeah. drop in the insider and it's it's also yeah. in one of the most powerful Everywhere moments of, it's the most powerful moment in deadwood like the in in one of the first three episodes of deadwood i believe it's where while bill hickok gets shot they drop iguazu and you know being an insider nerd i was like firstly i was offended i was like <gasps> that's iguazu and then secondly i was like oh this is an like it's an amazing and perfect choice. And a Deadwood is allowed to rip this song off forever because it's amazing. So, you know. One, one sounds like his Oscar then for Babel when it, when it yeah. dropped again. And, yeah, and it keeps dropping. Um, but um, the funny one is Terry Ripto. And forgive any Norwegian jazz fans here. I, I've never known how to say his name, but um, <laughs> his 
there's a couple of pieces last night and mystery man that more than golden Force stuff sort of express the the melancholy and the the pain of the the world that we're in yes and it's it's music with a very strong sense of setting like you feel like the music's echoing inside whatever space it was recorded in like a lot of the ecm stuff and it's come out of the ed scene she you know yeah she's going to go with neil and it sort of sparks up and then you see the sniper looking down on a car and it's uh it's all the masculine pain in the world this beautiful guitar riff sort of sailing out in the night and it leads you into Edie and it sort of uh, it leads you into Charlene and, it, and he sort of dies down again that piece is kind of the heart of heat as a piece of music yes I mean I, I suspect you make a case for God moving over the face of the waters but for all the all the Neil Edie scenes for me have always felt like the heart of heat. The first scene they were on the balcony together with last night and then Mystery Man comes up in their second encounter, which is the piece that is referred to here. And then this is Mystery Man kind of appearing again and it's, it's almost like, well, why is she going with him? Well, she's going with him because, yeah, there was just something he said that night. There's something that she needs too and there's a connection there and it it ties a very long string along a very long film. Yeah. Um, and it, a lot of people sort of go that you can't use needle drops this way. You can't build thematic connection and and complexity over the course of a film. But uh, I think man keeps proving it wrong. He keeps using things again and again, a little bit like Wonka. He yeah. keeps finding ways to kind of build motifs or static pieces of music. Um and this is not to knock Goldenfall because I love his stuff, but in some ways that's that's the key musical cue of Heat, the one we just came off. Yeah, I think it's um, the it's that both of those are it's the closest thing. And you talked about you know a little bit about the the traditional score earlier, um, and you know I think what's so funny is that we've we're almost educated from the very beginning to think of characters in a traditional score sense deserve a theme they just like you know the you know the mm. most notable ones are luke skywalker theme right you hear luke skywalker's theme yeah. and it's just undeniable it's it's the whole movie like you can just hear that for two seconds and you've got you know however many movies in your mind almost immediately it's it's that great thing but i think what you're talking about here is it's just one of those things that it's it's a choice it's michael Mann revealing his cards in a way it's going on oh, yeah. this this is the this is the deep romance of this movie. You know, even though Chris and Charlene are absolutely, there's a case to be made and there's echoes of it here. The way that he, he, he knows that there's this, there's about to be this pull. There's about to be this choice. So he wants to pull it away. He, he wants to know that these, you know, Neil and Edie is the great romance of this movie. And here's the other great romance, but you know, I'm not going to let you, I'm just going to tinkle that score in there so you can feel like, oh, there's romance, there's potential, there's going to be a choice made, but also that there's a lot of potential here that there's going to be heartache. But yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Yeah. It's, it's a it's a really, I don't know. I don't know if there's another filmmaker that I know of. You know, you mentioned Wong Kwai. I don't, I don't know if there's another filmmaker that can like, other than maybe Scorsese riffing on how to use the Rolling Stones in every single movie, you know, like and how to use needle drops from the Rolling Stones to, in every single movie that sort of carries through. But yeah, there's um maybe The Departed. Actually, that's a that's a that's a soundtrack that is just like nothing but needle drops, and it and it does seem to be connected to character um, as a weird one. That's a that's a that's another one that maybe is down the line. But yeah, you're so spot on. Just that it has to have that little beautiful 
trail off, but here's the choice. Here's what we have. Back of the show um, in mind. Yeah. The other thing is it's a very typical film music cue. It's just a curtain change. It picks up the end of the last scene and it carries you over the transition into the next. Yeah. Um, and for these sort of films, these these big ensemble narratives where there's some theme that sits behind all the ensemble and some idea connecting it, usually music in these films has to be – it has to be the thing that they the stories have in common, that there's something they can't touch there's some some completion they can't touch that um, they want to get to, and so when you sort of hear a score like Santa Lies Babel score, it's mostly the you, you feel very much the thing that those those various people can't say to each other is in the music. In Heat, the music, and this this is a golden full thing, although Riptol stuff has it here too. The music very much sums up this this beautiful idea of what if you didn't have to be connected to someone? Yeah. What if you could just be free and independent? And I I envy whoever's talking about the tunnel scene with you because the what the music does there to make Neil's decision work it's just you know it's so simple and yet it's so powerful the way dissonance does it and um, just this idea you could be free you could have no connections and uh, you kind of hear the siren call of Kronos Court. And, uh, yes yes yeah. indeed um yeah anyway um sorry i've taken taken up heaps of your time um so what are you forgive. talking about michael no that's exactly what we want to hear you know um i've had you know um, a couple of chicagoans um on the show and one of them in particular is michael rothman who's the editor of a publication called consequence of sound and you know i i think before and after the show and even during our recording of our episode we talked about the Cronus Quartet he was like and I think in he almost equally made the argument of like the Cronus whenever he thinks of heat it's the Cronus Quartet is the first is the first thing that leaps out to him you know Moby obviously God moving over the face of waters is the thing at the end of the film but um that the the difference with Moby is that unlike Riptal or unlike the Cronus Quartet um it's the Moby needle drop feels like it would need to be earned. Like it's a big bombastic thing. Like yeah. this is subtle. Like, yeah, I love what you said. It's like, this is something that you're making a choice that is not only going to flow and crescendo in a previous scene, curtain change to have a thematic connection with the next scene, but like Moby's, you know, God moving out of the face of the waters is like, this is the movie, you know? Um, so yeah, we'll, um, you know. Oh well, I, again, not to tread on that minute, but have you heard Goldenthal's version of that? Um, the no. music he wrote for that scene. No. Oh, you really, you really, you really must. I'll send you send you a link to it. It's um, and it, you can sort of see why it wasn't used, but it it's pretty interesting the way it tries to tie the little to music hear it. Puts it. Yeah, and um, it actually goes somewhat to your point about Heat never getting an Oscar nomination. It did. Slightly, because he he dropped the electric guitar and replaced it with a fiddle, electric fiddle and uh, bagpipes, and he used it as the finale of his score for Michael Collins, which oh. did get an Oscar nomination a year later. Um, and it's the one bit of heat that, <laughs> ironically, <laughs> didn't make it in heat. Eventually, eventually got an Oscar nomination. Um, uh, and that, look, Neil Jordan's film isn't bad either, but it's um, oh my it's god, heat, but, that yeah. is great so, trivia. That's great. I'll, I'm going to close. I'm going to close this episode out with that music instead of our closing theme this week. We're going to have that theme playing underneath, so people can get a sense of what it would sound like and what it would sound like in the end. Oh my goodness! 
Michael, I think that's the perfect way to end. I'm going to be devastated about Heat not having any Oscars, and I'm going to be ravenously awaiting your email with this link to hear Elliot Goldenthal's original theme um, uh, for the ending. And then I'm going to listen to the version that did get an Oscar nomination for Neil Jordan. What well, not it just weird? It's just weird. Let's just yeah. go quickly back and say, you know, I know that prestige and Oscars, blah, 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 doesn't, you know, not necessarily a metric of quality or whatever, but <sighs> come on. I mean, just I don't understand. I don't understand. Well, look, Blake, there's not a lot of Oscar winners that have have you talking about it for 135 hours. So, you know, <laughs> there, are, there, are other, there are other accolades in life. Um, the, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, you, I mean, I think, I think he's doing okay. I think, um, <laughs> well, look, on know, that note, that's, that's, the, that's another lovely thing um, that Michael said to me in this. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to jump off now while, while the getting's good. Ladies and gentlemen, please... Um, thank uh you know i just want to thank for all of you uh in front of you um michael mclennan thank you so much for being a part of one eight minute this has been amazing mate uh, a real a real treat and i know oh. your students your students that have a real treat if you ever do teach you want to teach a minute of heat and uh you ever want to get me down because i'm in sydney i would love to come along and uh and and chin wag with you in front of some uh, in front of some kids that'd be fun Oh, that'll be fantastic. We must, we must do that. We'll do that okay. afterwards. I'll let, I'll let Great. anyone know if the show's on uh, how that goes because I would love to do that. Guys, thank you so much um, for supporting One Hit Minute and listening along. Michael, thank you so much. Sydneyfilmschool.com, uh, you can find out all the information that you need um, on Michael. And uh, if you guys want to enroll and you're in Sydney, go nuts. Research all your stuff there and do what you need to do. Go make some films. And a shout-out to Faraz and Jack who told me about this podcast. Faraz and Jack. Go. Thank you for listening. Yeah. I hope you're listening right now, freaking out that uh, <laughs> that uh, you uh, got the shout out and uh, and Michael's on the show. So thank you so much for, uh, for the shout out too, and uh, and introducing Michael. It's a pleasure, guys. Thank you for listening to One Heat Minute again. I couldn't thank you enough. Um, as you guys are listening to this, um, I just wanted a quick shout out to say that. Um, uh, we've actually been nominated for an Australian Podcast Award uh, 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 Best Fan Cast uh, for 2019, which is pretty amazing. So, um, you know, thank you to the Australian Podcast Awards. Uh, we'll let you know how we go. Um, but I uh, just want to say a big thank you for everyone's support there. And without you guys listening, we wouldn't actually be there. Um, and uh, thank you to Mr. Garth Franklin for our web design. Thank you to Mr. Paul Davies for our awesome theme. And we'll catch you on another episode on One Eight Minute just around the corner. In fact, one where you got to make the choice. Do you give him up or do you cut him loose?